0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good this is Abayomi Azikoway and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Friday, uh, February the 23rd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the impact of the Palestine Solidarity Movement on the Democratic Party primaries in the United States. Lebanon resistance forces continue to target the Israeli occupation forces. Migrants in Tunisia are awaiting a decision by Albania on resettlement. And Senegal President Macky Saul says he will leave office by April. We continue our African American History Month programming with a tribute to malcolm x el-haj malik shabazz on the 59th anniversary of his martyrdom we will feature a speech uh, from 1965 and uh, another speech uh, also uh, from february 1965. these and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program stay tuned we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the legendary franco and the tp okay jazz orchestra uh, this is a Compilation of uh, tracks from the nineteen sixties. Let's listen in.
2: We come more food to our Africa moving by food and the pandas economy. Bongo 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 Le peuple la n'a pas la ma peuple politicien, y'a Congo, pas l'érable, pas l'érable, pas l'érable, pas l'érable, pas l'érable, pas la pas l'érable, oh, l'érable, pas l'érable, I'm a man of my own, 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 a moto of my own, i am a man of my own i am a man of my own Sai, o linghi samba, o La ministra, tika, I'm going to go to the Congo, province, ya cabinet, i Above mm-hmm. my i la going to go to the hospital, I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm
1: Orchestra, a compilation of uh, tracks uh, from uh, the 1960s, the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, headed by uh, Francois Machete, uh, Mwambo, uh, better known as Franco. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for this Friday, February 23rd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswise segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. A report uh, by Politico earlier today detailed that some Democrats in Michigan fear that President Biden's campaign underestimates the discontent among Arab American and young voters uh, over his response to the war on Gaza. Patients of a high protest vote in the upcoming primary, they worry it won't be a sufficient wake-up call for the campaign. I'm still surprised that they're not taking this more seriously. State Senator Darren Camilleri uh, told Politico, quote, I feel like this is 2016 all over again, unquote. He added while making reference to Donald Trump's electoral victory that year. It feels like our national party is not listening to our issues on the ground. If the president doesn't change course, I would not be surprised if Biden loses the state in November Another source confirmed to Politico that Democrats are indeed, quote, in trouble, unquote, and the ongoing violence in Gaza may affect Biden's chance of winning back voters. The primary in Michigan next week is expected to reveal the extent of division within the Democratic Party regarding Israel and President Biden's administration. Michigan, which Biden elevated to an early nominating position, represents a diverse range of Democratic voters, including union households, and a sizable block of black voters. Polls consistently indicate warning signs that Biden, among his base, those particularly concerned about the war on Gaza, are rallying to express their dissatisfaction by encouraging voters to cast an uncommitted uh, vote uh, in the upcoming primary. Quote, if they're not going to be moved because of the humanity of the Palestinian people, then perhaps they'll view things differently when there is a political calculus they have to take into consideration, unquote, said State Representative Abraham Ayash. told this to Politico. He went on to say that Michigan is a state that swung from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and not by significant numbers. So we have to recognize that there are still a lot of voters who feel very frustrated. And you can read this article in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, the Islamic resistance in Lebanon bombed Several Israeli sites in support of the resistance and people of Gaza, as well as in response to the aggression on southern Lebanon. The Islamic resistance in Lebanon, Hezbollah, announced earlier today that its forces targeted the Israeli KIA site on the Palestinian-Lebanese border, using two Burkhan rockets, allowing them to deal extensive damage to the Israeli site. The Islamic resistance announced that it had launched several missiles and rockets at the Ruwesat al-alam and the radar sites in the occupied Sheba farms these operations follow a twin drone attack earlier in the day that saw the islamic resistance using two kamikaze drones to attack the headquarters of the regional council in the northern israeli settlement of kiryat smona you're listening to the pan-african newswire segment of the pan-african journal and in Tunisia, migrants and asylum seekers on Thursday expressed their divided opinion over Albania's controversial migration deal with Italy. Albania's parliament approved a deal for the country to hold thousands of asylum seekers for Italy in a vote yesterday despite protests from opposition lawmakers and human rights groups. For some of the people currently sheltering at a camp in Tunisia, Albania is not the destination of choice for them. However, others said they were open to going to Albania, especially those fleeing war or repression in their own countries. Quote, we need safety and security because we don't know what will happen to us in Albania. If Europe's decision will help us, we support it and hope they will help us because we are already fleeing from war, unquote, said Ahmed, a Sudanese refugee who did not give his last name. Under the five-year deal, Albania would shelter up to 3,000 migrants rescued from international waters at any one time and finally in the west african state of senegal president mackie saul said yesterday that he will end his term in april as expected but he didn't give a new date for the presidential election originally scheduled for sunday saul who is wrapping up two terms in office and who has said he wouldn't run again postponed the election for 10 months citing unresolved disputes over who could run But his move uh, was struck down by the Senegal's constitutional court as being illegal. Speaking to journalists uh, just two days, just one day ago on live television, Saul said he would end his term as scheduled on April 2nd. However, it was unclear if a new president could be elected uh, before then. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswatch segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, We like to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people throughout the continent and the world the press agency was founded in january of 1998 since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers magazines journals research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world the pan-african newswire represents the only daily international news source on pan-african and global affairs if you'd like to log on to the pan-african newswire all you need to do is go to our website and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com if you'd like to have access to today's pan-african journal special worldwide radio broadcast for friday february 23rd uh, 2024 just go to the pan-african radio network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com, forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
2: Keep it up! I'm gonna go through the floor. That's what's going-
1: Back, uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Friday, February 23rd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was Howard Tate uh, with the track entitled "Stop." And uh, just two days ago, it represented the 59th anniversary of the martyrdom of Malcolm X, el Haj Malik Shabazz. Uh, he was gunned down on February 21, 1965, at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City. Right now, we're going to play uh, one of his uh, last speeches. It was delivered like a month and a half uh, before his assassination. This address was delivered on January 7th of 1965 in New York City at the Militant Labor Forum. The title of the speech was Prospects for Freedom, 1965. Let's listen in.
2: Mr.
0: Chairman, one of my brothers, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is, I'm very honored, I feel very honored, it's an honor to me to be able to come back to the Militant Labor Forum again this evening. It's my third time here. I was just telling my brother up here that probably tomorrow morning the press will, will try and make it appear that this little chat that we're having here this evening took place in Beijing or someplace else. They have a tendency to discolor things uh, in, that, in that way to try and make people not place the proper importance upon what they hear, especially when they're hearing it nowadays from persons whom they can't control, or as my brother has just pointed out, persons whom they consider irresponsible. But it's the third time that I've had an opportunity to be But it's the third time that I've had an opportunity to uh, be a guest on the militant labor forum, and I always feel that it is an honor. And every time they open the door for me to do so, I will be right here. The, the militant newspaper is one of the best in New York City. In fact, it's one of the best everywhere you go today because everywhere I go, I see it. I saw it even in Paris about a month ago. Uh, They were reading it over there, and I saw copies of it in some parts of Africa where I was during the summer. I don't know how it gets there, but if you put the right things in it, what you put in it, we'll see that it gets around. Tonight, during the few moments that we have, we're going to have a little chat, like brothers and sisters and friends and probably enemies too about the prospect for peace or prospect for freedom in 1965 But you notice i almost almost slipped there and said peace actually you can't separate peace from freedom anybody no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom you can't separate the two and this is the thing that makes 1965 so explosive and so dangerous the people in this country who in the past have been at peace and been peaceful were that way only because they didn't know what freedom was. They let somebody else define it for them. But today, 1965, you find those who have not had freedom uh, and not in a position to define freedom, they're beginning to define it for themselves now. And as they get in a position intellectually to define freedom for themselves, they see that they don't have it. And it makes them less peaceful or less inclined toward peace. So in discussing this topic tonight, Prospects for Freedom, in 1965, I think we have to go back at least 12 years or 10 years to the time when the struggle of the black man in America began to be projected into the limelight, not only in this country but throughout the world. It started primarily with the Supreme Court decision so-called desegregation decision and uh, i should say so-called desegregation so-called decision because uh there have been some doubt as to what they really handed down one of the main ingredients in the struggle of the black man in america for the past 12 years has been the black muslim movement no one can can uh, deny the role that the black Muslim movement has played in America during the past 12 years has been one of the main ingredients in the uh, stepped-up militancy on the part of black people throughout this country. No matter what direction the black Muslim movement itself was headed in, no matter what its own organizational philosophy was, And no matter what other people thought about it, no matter what their personal opinions were of the black Muslim movement, still it cannot be denied that that movement, because of its uncompromising stand and uncompromisingly militant approach to things, uh, forced other civil rights organizations to be more militant than they normally would have been, and forced many of the civil rights leaders definitely to be more militant than they ever would have thought of being. So the, the militancy of the black man in America during the past 10 years, in my opinion, can be traced largely to the existence and presence of the movement which I'm referring to now for purpose of identification as the black Muslim movement. Its contribution to the black struggle for freedom in this country was militancy. It made many of our people dare to get loud for the first time in 400 years. Many of the black leaders of the civil rights movement dare to get loud for the first time. I mean really loud for the first time in in 400, nearly 400 years of our being in this country. They got more militant than they intended to be and they made many of the people become more militant than they intended for the people to be it had a chain reaction effect that actually got out of control somewhat because the leaders themselves never intended and never do intend for our people to go too far their primary purpose in our midst has always been to contain our struggle not lead our struggle Proof group of which seldom are they seen until the irresponsible elements in the black community begin to explode. And then they go all the way around the country to grab one of them from wherever he's traveling and bring him in to cool things down, to tell us to be cool or tell us to take it easy, don't rock the boat. This is their function. This is their role. At least it has been up until recent times. They never have been put in the role that they're in, with the intention by the by the one who puts them there of them leading us into any uncompromising un, uh, and militant uh, struggle. But the existence of some of the Muslim groups and the black nationalist groups that couldn't be controlled by the power structure downtown, and I only use the expression power structure downtown to keep from calling it what it actually is, <laughs> these nationalist elements actually uh, serve their purpose in that sense. They gave respectability to the civil rights groups and gave acceptability to the civil rights groups. Ten years ago or more, the NAACP was looked upon as a a radical, leftist, almost subversive movement. And then when the black Muslim movement came along, the power structure said, Thank the Lord for Roy Wilkins and the NAACP. (laughs) This is true. Pick up any newspaper that was printed ten years ago. And read what was being said about CORE, and NAACP, and Urban League, and some of these other groups. They were considered irresponsible. They were considered moving too fast. They were considered almost extremists. And then when they looked around one day and found someone talking about all of them a devil, they were all night looking up Roy Wilkins, and James Farmer and the right Reverend Dr. King and some of the others to soothe them and keep them thinking that all of our people didn't, didn't think like that. So it did contribute its part in the struggle. It made Roy Wilkins acceptable and honorable and responsible. And sometimes today I think he's forgotten what we've done for him. <laughs> This is one of the reasons why Taman has lasted so long in Kenya. Uh, during the Mau Mau uprising, when white people were scared to death, not only in Kenya, but throughout Africa, and not only in Africa, but throughout the world. Because there were people who looked just like the Kikuyu right here in New York, in Mississippi, and other places. When, uh, when Mao Mau was on the rampage and Jomo Kenyatta was given the image of a monster, because his own image was so ghastly in, in the sight of whites, the image of Tom Mboya immediately became acceptable. Because Kenyatta seemed to be so irresponsible, Mboya became responsible. He became acceptable, responsible, you know, and made everybody happy. So they supported him. They backed him up, made him prominent throughout the world. Kenyatta made him. He didn't make himself. And he was intelligent enough to know it. So when Kenyatta got out, he supported Kenyatta. He realized that the contribution of Kenyatta made him what he was. And because he was intelligent enough, he had, he was blessed with sufficient insight to see the role that Kenyatta and the Mau Mau played in his own uh, prominence an image of respectability and acceptability he continued to support Kenyatta and today he's still a part of Kenyatta's government and I must take time right here to point out that that's a good study in itself it took the Mau Mau to bring independence not only to Kenya It took the Mau Mau to bring independence to most of Africa. When a man is sad over his miserable condition, he does nothing to change it. Sadness doesn't change anything. It's only when he gets mad that he changes it. It takes madness to change it. One of the things I noticed when I was in Africa traveling around, I noticed many Africans who were still colonized, still exploited, still oppressed, And one of the things all of them had in common was they seemed sad, they would discuss their sad plight, but they weren't ready to really do anything to change it. They seemed to be waiting on some miracle. But the contrasting difference between them and what happened in Kenya, the Kikuyu got mad. They just didn't care what the consequences were. They they cared nothing about legality, morality, or anything. All they knew was that they were being oppressed unjustly, illegally immorally. And because of this unjust, illegal, immoral oppression that they were suffering, they came to the conclusion that they would be within their rights to bring it to a halt by any means necessary. And they adopted those means. when they began to use these means in their struggle for freedom, the the press of the West began to project them in a very negative image. They were freedom fighters. They were African patriots fighting against oppression. They weren't fighting against a legal government. They weren't fighting against a moral society. They were fighting against a a colonial power, an imperialist power, a a vulturist society. And this vulturist society, with its control of the press and its its, uh, allies here in the United States, who also control much of the press, projected these freedom fighters, these African patriots, uh, in the image of savages, cannibals, terrorists, as criminals, actually. And they projected Jomo Kenyatta in an image worse than all. But the Mau Mau weren't image conscious. They weren't uh, status seekers. They weren't social climbers. They wanted freedom. And they came to a conclusion at a point in their journey that the only way there was to get it was the way they did it, and they got it. I admire them for that. I respect them for that. Now that they are free, Jomo Kenyatta, whose image was that of a monster four years ago, is the president of Kenya. He's respected. Uh, so much so that when the hostages were being held in Stanleyville and no one else dared to do anything about it, they called on Jomo and asked him would he sit down and mediate between the American ambassador, Atwood, there in Kenya, and uh, Tom Kanza from Stanleyville, the same man that the West projected as a monster. They had to call on him. And when you go to Kenya today, you will find white people in Kenya praying that Kenyatta doesn't die. The same, yeah, they're praying, and they should. Uh, they are praying that he doesn't die. The same man that a few years ago was projected as a monster, as an extremist, as being irresponsible. Now they say he's the most responsible head of state on the African continent. So the difference between being projected as an extremist or a monster is only, only depends upon who controls the projection. If you project your own image, then you are able to project a positive image. But when your enemy is your master, and when your enemy masters the press that's going to build, create this image and project it abroad, then naturally your enemy is going to project you in the image of a monster. So I say, and I must say, because a reporter was asking me a few moments ago to either confirm or deny the statement that mentioned why I said we need a Mao Mao in the United States. I never would deny that. Why, we need more than a Mao Mao in the United States. I mean, actually, a person have a lot of nerve to ask me that. In a society, in a society, I'm deviating now because he put me off the track. I got to deviate. (laughs) In a society where in 1964, three civil rights workers can be murdered in cold blood, and not the Mississippi government, the federal government can't do anything about it. I say we need a Mao Mao. Negro educator can be murdered in Georgia and they know who murdered him and the government can do nothing about it I say we need a mile now <laughs> and I'll be the first to join it and a lot of people that you don't think go for it will line right up behind me. <laughs> So getting back to the black Muslim movement, the, you have to understand it in order to understand pretty much what has taken place in the civil rights movement in this country during the past ten years and in order to understand what might take place in 1965. The black Muslim movement attracted the most militant young black people in this country. The most restless The most impatient and the most uncompromising black men and women were attracted to the black Muslim movement. But the movement itself, as it began to grow, actually was maneuvered into a a vacuum in that it, it represented itself as a religious movement, and the religion under which it identified itself was Islam. And the people in the part of the world who also identified that as their religion did not accept the black Muslim movement as a bona fide Islamic or Muslim movement. They never did accept it as that. So it it, it was put in the position of going by a religion that rejected it, which put it into a vacuum or made it a religious hybrid. On the other hand, the government in Washington I guess that's where it is, tried to label the black Muslim movement uh, as political. It used the press, it maneuvered the press to project the black Muslim movement in an image that would enable the government itself to, uh, to list it as political and therefore label it seditious and subversive and step in and stomp it out like it stomped out most bona fide freedom movements that appear in this country. So the Black Muslim Movement was not only a a, a, a religious hybrid, but it became a political hybrid, in that it was more political than religious, but at the same time it didn't take part in politics, it didn't take part in the civil rights struggle, it took part in nothing that black people in this country was doing to correct conditions that existed in our community, other than it had a moral force that it, it stopped our people from getting drunk and taking drugs and things of that sort. Which is not enough. After you sober up, you still pause. So it became in a vacuum. It had it actually developed, it grew, it became powerful, but it was in a vacuum. And it was filled with extremely militant young people who weren't willing to compromise with anything and wanted action. More action actually than the organization itself could produce. More constructive action and positive action than the hierarchy of the organization was qualified actually to produce. The main objective of the movement was land. The main objective of the movement was land. But those in the movement were told that God would come and take them to that land. Well, for a time this was all right, but no visible means were ever detected by anyone in the movement that would enable us to see that a plan was afoot to make this objective materialize. It caused dissatisfaction, it caused dissension, which eventually developed division. And out of the division, immediately, those who left, uh, out of that division, or out of those who left, was formed uh, an authentic religious group, known as Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which practiced the religion of Islam as it is practiced and taught in Cairo and Lahore and other parts of the Muslim world. But those who went into the... Uh, orthodox practice of the Islam religion in the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, at the same time we realized that we were black people in a white society. That we were black people in a racist society. We were black people in a society whose very political system was based and nourished upon racism. Whose social system was a racist system. Whose economic system was nourished with racism. We were black people who wanted to be religious, who wanted to practice brotherhood and all of that, who wanted to love everybody and all of that, too. But at the same time, that was a dream, you know, as my good friend the doctor said. Brotherhood and wanting peace and wanting all these other beautiful things, we had to also face reality and realize that we were in a racist society that was controlled by racists from the federal government right on down to the local government, from the White House right on down to the city hall. Racism was what we were confronted by. So we knew that this was a problem that was beyond religion, and we formed another organization that was non-religious, and this organization was called the Organization of Afro-American Unity or the OAAU. And we, we, we got the idea for it from travels and observation of the success that our brothers on the African continent were having in their struggle for freedom. We're getting faster than we. They were getting their independence faster than we. They were getting recognition and respect even when they came to this country faster than we. But we had to find out what was happening. How were they doing it and what were they doing? So we could try a little bit of it. on, On the African continent, the imperialists, the colonial powers, had always divided and conquered. They had practiced divide and conquer. And this had kept the people of Africa and Asia from ever coming together. So on the African continent had appeared an organization known as the OAU, or Organization of African Unity, and this had been put together by a group of uh, highly skilled African intellectuals and politicians, Uh, and it was designed to make the African heads of state who had been kept apart and divided from each other by differences, petty differences, uh, personal differences, This organization provided an atmosphere in which these heads of state could submerge their differences and work together in areas where they could agree toward a common objective. And since we in America were confronted with the same divisive tactics from our enemy, we decided to call ours the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which would be uh, designed after the letter and spirit of the Organization of African Unity. In fact, we considered ourselves an offspring of our uh, parent organization on our mother continent. After it was formed, I spent five months in, in the Middle East and Africa, primarily for the purpose of getting better acquaint- acquainted with them and making them better acquainted with us, giving them a firsthand account of our problem and what our problem actually consists of. When I first got there in uh, July, I found some of them difficult to talk to. But by the time I left in November, I didn't find anybody difficult to talk to. (laughs) And I might say that right here and now, that one of the things that made the uh, objective more easily reached was America's identifying herself with Moy Shumby never could a government do anything more suicidal politically than the this government choosing moy shambi as a bed partner in 1964 and the the offspring of that adulterous act Will be something that they never will be able to put under the rug.
2: By the time I had returned, by
0: the time I had returned in uh, last month, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated had received official recognition and support by all of the official religious bodies in the Muslim world, and. The Organization of Afro-American Unity had also received recognition and support from all of the African countries uh, where I visited, and and most of those where I didn't visit. The first thing I returned, I kept being asked the question by some reporters, (laughs) Uh, we heard you change." And I I would say, I was kind to the reporter, actually. I smiled and all. (laughs) But I would say to myself, how in the world can a white man expect a black man to change before he has changed? How do you expect us to change when you haven't changed? How do you expect us to change when the cause that made us as we are has not been removed? Why it's infantile, it's immature, and adolescent on the part, on your part, to expect us to change, to expect us to be dull enough to change, when you have not yet gone to the cause of the condition that makes us act as we do. You got the wrong man. <laughs> it's true, I'm a Muslim. I believe in brotherhood, and I believe in the brotherhood of all men. But my religion doesn't make me a fool. (laughs) My religion makes me be against all forms of racism It keeps me from judging any man by the color of his skin. It teaches me to judge him by his deeds and his conscious behavior. And it teaches me to be the right for the rights of all human beings, but especially the Afro-American human beings, because my religion is a natural religion, and the first law of nature is self-preservation. And One of the things that our people have not been doing in this country up until now, we have not been uh, exercising the first law of nature. We have not thought of ourselves first. We have placed America first. We have placed America's interests ahead of our own. We have placed even the interests of whites ahead of our own. We have loved whites when they refused to love us. We have sought to move into their neighborhood when they did. we knew in advance they didn't want us there. We have crawled like animals at the feet of the white man in this country and been rejected. So that today, if you see us step back and get away from you, you can't blame us. You have to blame yourself or your mother or your father. you don't want to accept the blame yourself, then put it on your mother and your father. But don't put it on us. So now to get to my talk <laughs> about 1965 and the prospects for freedom. In 1964, oppressed people all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, made some progress. Northern Rhodesia threw off the yoke of colonialism and became Zambia, was accepted into the United Nations, the Society of Independent Governments. Nyasaland became Malawi also was accepted into the U.N., into the family of independent governments. Zanzibar had a revolution. It <laughs> threw out the colonialists and their lackeys, and then united with Tanzania, what is now known as the Republic of Tanzania, which is progress indeed. I was there, it's one of the most beautiful countries and the best people that I was with. My good friend, Abdur-Rahman Mohammed Babu, was one of the architects of the revolution, and I find him to be a most highly enlightened human being, and a humanitarian, (laughs) and a lover of freedom. Also in 1964, the oppressed, People in the South Vietnam area and that entire South uh, East Asia area were successful in fighting off the agents of imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men haven't enabled them to put North and South imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men haven't enabled them to put North and South Vietnam back together again. Yeah. <laughs> Little rice farmers, rice farmers, peasants with a rifle, and all the weapons of warfare, highly mechanized jets, napalm battleships everything else and they can't put those rice farmers back where they wanted somebody's waking up in the congo also the people's republic of the congo headquartered at stanleyville fought the war for freedom against shambi who was an agent of western imperialism and by Western imperialism, I mean that which is headquartered in the United States in the State Department. <laughs> in 1964, this government subsidizing Shambi, the murderer of Lumumba, and Shambi's mercenaries hired killers from South Africa, along with the former colonial our Belgian dropped paratroopers on the people of the Congo, used Cubans that they had trained to drop bombs on the people of the Congo with American-made planes. To no avail. The struggle is still going on, and America's man Shammbi is still losing.) of this in 1964 now i'm speaking like this it doesn't mean that i'm anti-american i'm not i'm not anti-american <laughs> or un-american and i'm not saying that to defend myself because if i was that, i'd have a right to be there after what america has done to us this government should be lucky that our people aren't anti-american they should get down on your hands and knees every morning and thank god that 22 million black people have have not become anti-American. Because if anybody has a right to be anti-American, we have. You've given up every right to, it. and the whole world would side with us if we became anti-American. You know that's something to think about. But we're not anti-American. But we see we are anti or against what America is doing wrong in other parts of the world as well as here. And what she did in the Congo in 1964 is wrong. It's criminal. Criminal. And what she did to the American public to get the American public to go along with it is criminal. What she's doing in South Vietnam is criminal. She's causing American soldiers to be murdered every day, killed every day, die every day for no, no reason at all. That's wrong. Now, you're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong no matter who who does it or who says it. Now, if I'm anti-American for saying that, then Wayne Morse is anti-American. Church Senator from somewhere out there is anti-American. A out of them in Washington, D.C., is anti-American. So I'm just telling you what I I read the good sentences said. (laughs) Also in 1964, uh, China exploded her bomb, which was a scientific breakthrough for the oppressed people in China who suffered for a long time. I, for one, was very happy to hear that the great people of China, uh, were able to display their scientific advancement, advanced knowledge of science, to the point where a country that is so backward, as this country keeps saying, and so, you know, behind everybody, and so poor, could come up with a an, a with an atomic bomb, why I had to marvel at that. It uh, made me realize that poor people can do it, as well as rich people. <laughs> So all of these little advances were made by oppressed people in other parts of the world during 1964. These were tangible gains. And the reason that they were able to make these gains, they they realized that power was the magic word. Power against power. Power in defense of freedom is greater than power in behalf of tyranny and oppression. Because power, real power, comes from conviction. And it produces action. Uncompromising action. It also produces insurrection against oppression. This is the only way you end oppression with power. Power power never is power never takes a back step, only in the face of more power. It doesn't do it with a, it doesn't, power doesn't back up in the face of a smile, or in the face of a prayer, or in the face of some kind of non-violent loving action. Power, it's not the nature of power to back up in the face of anything but some more power. And this is what the, this is what the people have realized in Southeast Asia, in the Congo, in Cuba, in other parts of the world, that power recognizes only power. And all of them who realize this have made gains. Now here in America, it's different. When you compare our strides in 1964 with strides that have been made forward by people elsewhere all over the world, only then can you appreciate the great double-cross experienced by black people here in America in
2: 1964.
0: The, the, the power structure started the new year out the same way they started that out in Washington the other day, only now they call it, what's that, the Great Society? The Great Society. Last year, uh, 1964, was supposed to be the year of promise. They opened up the new year in Washington, D.C., and in the City Hall and in Albany, talking about the year of promise. Promise that black people would make advances in education, would get better schools, better school facilities, better teachers. That jobs would open up. There would be less black people in the unemployment line. That in areas of the South where we formerly had not been able to vote, we would be be able to register and vote. That we we would become socially acceptable to those who in the past did not consider us socially acceptable. But by the end of 1964, we had to agree that instead of the year of promise, Instead of these promises materializing, they substituted devices to create the illusion of progress. And 1964 was the year of illusion and delusion. We received nothing but a promise. We received nothing that would actually solve the problems that we were confronted by in January of 1964. In 1963, they had used a trick, one of their devices, uh, uh, let off the steam of prostration was the March on Washington. They used that to make us think we were making progress. Imagine marching to Washington and getting nothing for it whatsoever. But it shows you how true the power structure is it the people through the leaders as long as the people believe in the leaders. In 63, it was the March on Washington. In 64, what was it? The Civil Rights Bill. Right after they passed the Civil Rights Bill, they murdered a Negro in Georgia and did nothing about it, murdered two whites and a Negro in Mississippi and did nothing about it. So that the Civil Rights Bill has produced nothing where we're concerned. It was only a a valve, a vent, that that would enable us, that was designed to enable us to let off our frustration. But the bill itself was not designed to solve our problems. Since we see what they did in 1963 and we saw what they did in 1964, what will they do now in 1965? If the March on Washington was supposed to lessen the explosion and the Civil Rights Bill was designed to lessen the explosion, that's all it was designed to do. It wasn't designed to solve the problem. It was designed to lessen the explosion because everyone in his right mind knows there should have been an explosion. You can't have all those ingredients, those explosive ingredients that exist in Holland and elsewhere where our people suffer and not have an explosion. So these are devices to lessen the danger of the explosion, but not designed to remove the material that's going to explode. What will they give us in 1965? I just read where they plan to make a black cabinet member. Yes, they have a new gimmick every year. They're going to take one of their boys, black boys, and put him in the cabinet so he can walk around Washington with a cigar, fire on one end and fool on the other end. And because his immediate personal problem will have been solved, he will be the one to tell our people, look how much progress we're making. I'm in Washington, D.C. I can have tea in the White House. I'm your spokesman. I'm your, you know, your leader. While our people are still living in Harlem in the slums, still receiving the worst form of education and the worst facilities in which to try and educate our children. This is the device that they will use. They'll make a black cabinet member. I read that's one of the gimmicks that they got going. But will it work? Can that one whom they are going to put down there step into the fire and put it out when the flames begin to leap up? When people take to the streets and their explosives move, will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in. At the international level in 1964, up until 1964 and through 1964, what the the device that they use, they send well-chosen black representatives to the African continent. Whose mission it was to make the people on that continent think that all of our problems had been solved. They went over there as apologists. I saw some of them, trailed some of them, saw the results that some of them had left there. But their prime mission was to go into Africa, which is the most vital country uh, to the United States' interest. So these towns—you're not supposed to call them towns nowadays—they're you. So these uncles were sent over there. <laughs> don't, don't don't bother the man. He's he's doing his job. And because his immediate personal problem will have been solved, he will be the one to tell our people, look how much progress we're making. I'm in Washington, D.C. I can have tea in the White House. I'm your spokesman. I'm your, you know, your leader. While our people are still living in Harlem in the slums, still receiving the worst form of education and the worst facilities in which to try and educate our children. This is the device that they will use. They'll make a black cabinet member. I read that's one of the gimmicks that they got going. But will it work? Can that one whom they are going to put down there step into the fire and put it out <laughs> when the flames begin to leap up? When people take through the streets in their explosive mood, Will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in? When people take to the streets and their explosive move, will that one that they're going to put in the cabinet be able to go among those people? Or they'll burn him faster than they burn the ones who've been in? At the international level in nineteen sixty-four, up until nineteen sixty-four and through nineteen sixty-four, what the the device that they used, they send well chosen black representatives to the African continent, whose mission it was to make the people on that continent think that all of our problems had been solved. They went over there as apologists. I saw some of them, trailed some of them, saw the results that some of them had left there. But their prime mission was to go into Africa, which is the most vital country uh, to the United States' interests. So these Toms, you're not supposed to call them Toms nowadays, they are you. So these uncles were sent over there. Don't, don't bother the man.
2: He's,
0: he's doing his job. He's going to put you on TV <laughs> so you can get investigated.
2: <laughs> so
0: these Toms uh, don't go to Africa actually because they want to explore or learn something for themselves, broaden their scope, or communicate between them, them, between their people and, and our people over there. But they go primarily to represent the United States government. And when they go, they gloss things over. They tell how well we're doing here, how the Civil Rights Bill has settled everything and how the Nobel Peace Prize was handed down. Oh, yes, that's how they tell it. (laughs) Actually, they succeed in widening the gap between the Afro-American and the African. The image that they leave there of the Afro-American is so obnoxious that the African ends up not wanting to identify with it or be related to it. And it is only when the nationalist-minded, African nationalist-minded or black-minded Afro-American goes abroad to the African continent and establishes direct lines of communication and lets the African brothers over there know what is happening over here and know that our people are not so dumb that we are blind to our trucian and position in this structure, then the Africans begin to Uh, understand us, and identify with us, and sympathize with our problems, and to the point where they are willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to see that their long-lost brothers get a better break than we've been getting up to now. On the national scale during 1964, as I just mentioned, politically, The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had its face flat at Atlantic City at a convention over which Lyndon B. Johnson was the boss, and Hubert Humphrey was the next boss, and Mayor Wagner had a lot of influence himself. Still none of that influence was shown in any way whatsoever when the hopes and aspirations of the people, the black people of Mississippi, were at stake. Though at the beginning of 64 we were told that our political rights would be broadened, it was in uh, 1964 that the two white civil rights workers, working with the black uh, civil rights worker, was murdered. And the only thing that they were doing was trying to help the black people of Mississippi learn how to register. This is all. This is their crime. They were trying to show our people in Mississippi how to become registered voters. This was their crime. This was the reason for which they were murdered. And the the most pitiful part about them being murdered was the civil rights organizations themselves being so chickened when it comes to reacting in a way that they should have reacted to the murder of these three civil rights workers. The, the civil rights group sold those three brothers out. Sold them out. Sold them right down the river because they died, and what has been done about it? And what voice is being raised every day today in regards to the murder of those three civil rights workers? It has been forgotten. You hear nothing else about it. And the only time it comes up is when J. Edgar Hoover calls one of the Negro leaders a liar, and then another argument starts in motion, and they then ask what about the brothers who got murdered. But when it comes to the murder itself, it's forgotten, gone by glossed over and nothing has been done about it. So this is why I say, if we get involved in the Civil Rights Movement and go to Mississippi or any place else to help our people get registered to vote, we intend to go
2: prepared.
0: to break the law. Because when you're trying to register to vote, you're upholding the law. It's the one
2: who tries to prevent
0: you from registering to vote who's breaking the law. And you got a right. You got a right to protect yourself by any means necessary. And if the government doesn't want civil rights groups going equipped, the government should do its job. (laughs) Concerning the Harlem incident that took place during the summer when the citizens of Harlem were attacked, in a, a pogrom? How do you pronounce that word? Pogrom? Pogrom. That's what it was. I was reading about it overseas. I can't pronounce it because it's not my word. <laughs> but it's that when the, when the people of Harlem were the victims of that pogrom. That's your word. <laughs> During the summer. We had heard long before it took place, that it was going to take place. We had gotten the word that there were elements in the power structure that were going to incite a riot, something in Holland, that they could call a riot, in order that they could step in and be justified in using whatever measures necessary to crush the militant groups which were still considered in the uh, embryonic stage and realizing that there was a plan afoot to instigate something in Harlem so they they could step in and crush it. There were elements in Harlem who were prepared and qualified and equipped to retaliate in situations like that who purposely did not get involved. And the real miracle of the Harlem explosion was the restraint exercised by the people of Harlem The miracle of 1964, I tell it to you straight, the miracle of 1964 during the incidents that took place in Holland was the restraint exercised by the people in Holland who are qualified and equipped and whatever else there is to protect themselves when they are being illegally an immorally and unjustly attack and an illegal attack an unjust attack and an immoral attack does not have can be made against you by anyone just because a person has on a uniform does not give him the right to come and shoot up your neighborhood no this is not right and my suggestion would be that as long as the police department doesn't use those methods in white neighborhoods, they shouldn't come to Harlem and use it in our neighborhoods. I wasn't here. I'm glad I wasn't here. Because I'd be dead. They'd have to kill me. I'd rather be dead than to let someone walk around my house or in my neighborhood shooting it up where my children are in the line of fire, either they die or I die.
2: It's
0: not intelligent. And it all started when a little boy was shot by a policeman. And he was turned loose the same as the sheriff was turned loose in Mississippi when he killed three civil rights workers. I'm almost ending. I'm just taking my time tonight because I'm overworked. (laughs) And I'm taking my time. I'm taking my time, I'm not hurrying up, I mean. I hope that you don't misunderstand me when I say that and I'm not advocating anything illegal against the police. I know good police, and I know bad police. I know policemen that bending over backwards to be human, and to protect other humans, and to treat people as if they are human beings. Then I know others who shouldn't be on the force. They're not qualified morally, either even mentally, some of them not even psychologically, to be on the force. Well, those kind, I don't go for. But those who can pass the test, <laughs> they're all right. We don't include them with the rest. While millions of our people are starving in this country, this government is spending billions of dollars abroad to feed other people. They send in wheat over to Russia and Poland, some of those other places. And dumping a lot of it in the ocean to keep the market down while people are starving. This is something that doesn't add up. How are you going to have peace in 1965? And you're hungry, no job, welfare workers won't even work. (laughs) And you read where they're dumping, while you go on the rampage. You think they're out of their mind? In 1965, for we had still with us the slum lords. People who don't who own the houses but don't live there themselves. Usually they live up around the grand concourse or somewhere. They contribute to the NAACP core and all the civil rights organizations. Give you money to go out and picket and they own the house that you're picketing. <laughs> And this bad housing conditions that continue to exist up there, they keep our people the victims of health problems. High infant and adult mortality rate is higher in Harlem than any other part of the country or part of the city. They promised us jobs and gave us welfare checks instead. We're still jobless. we're still unemployed. The welfare is taken care of making us beggars, robbing us of our dignity, of our manhood. So that I point out that in 1964, it was not a pie in the sky year of promises as was promised in, the, in January of that year. Blood did flow in the streets of Harlem, Philadelphia, Rochester, some places over here in Jersey, and elsewhere. In 1965, even more blood will flow. More than you ever dreamt. It'll flow downtown as well as uptown.
1: Why? Why will it flow?
0: Have the causes that forced it to flow in 65 or 64 been removed? Have the causes that made it flow in 63 been removed? The causes are still there. How can you sit around and and, and, and naively, in such a naive way, and make yourself think that things are getting better? when the causes that created the bad conditions still remain. The only one whose problem is solved is the leader. They get the peace prize, while the people have no peace. Or as he himself said, while he's up on the mountain, the people are in the valley. I'm going to tell you why it's going to flow. Then bring my little talk to a close. In 1964, 97% of the black American voters supported Lyndon B. Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, and the Democratic
2: Party.
0: 97%. No one minority group in the history of the world has ever given so much of its uncompromising support to one candidate and one party in the history of the world. No, no one people, no one group has ever gone all the way to support a party and its candidate. As did the people, the black people in America, in 1964. Look how many people voted for Goldwater. Over 26 million. Why? When you when you when you deduct the non-white people from the total white population, you'll find wow. out that white people were almost evenly divided between Goldwater and Johnson. Yes. Go get the total number of voters in this country and find out how many of them are white. Deduct the non-whites, the Puerto Ricans and the Negroes and the others, and you'll find out that white people didn't support Johnson like they want to brag that they did. The non-whites went for him 97%. And the first act of the Democratic Party, Lyndon B. included, in 1965, when the representatives from the state of Mississippi, who refused to support Johnson, came to Washington, D.C., and the black people of Mississippi sent representatives there to challenge the legality of these people being seated. What did Johnson say? Nothing. What did Humphrey say? Nothing. What did Robert Boy Kennedy say? Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. These are the people that black people have supported. This is the party that they have supported. Where were they when the black man needed them last couple days ago in Washington D.C.? They are. They were where they always are, twittering their thumb someplace in the pool room. Are in the gallery. So black people in 1964 will not be controlled by these Uncle Tom leaders. You believe it? They won't be held in jail. They won't be held on the plantation by the overseers. They won't be held in the corral. They won't be held back at all. The frustration of these black representatives from Mississippi, when they arrived in Washington D.C. the other day, thinking, you know, that the great society was going to include them, only to see the door closed in their face like that. That's what makes them think. That's what makes them realize what they're up against. It is this type of frustration that produced the Mao they reached the point where they saw it takes power to talk to power.
2: It takes power to make power respected. It takes
0: madness almost to deal with a power structure that's so corrupt, so corrupt, so in 1955, we should see a lot of action. Since the old methods haven't worked, they'll be forced to try new methods. If you read the article in this week's U.S. News and World Report, which is not the best magazine in the world, where it does tell, though, that the Big Six, they call themselves the Big Six, the uh, leaders of the black community who have been endorsed by the white community, the Big Six, they themselves are turning to Africa. Dr. King, Farmer, all of them are admitting that the problem of the black man in America is inseparable from the problem of the African. Dr. King and Mr. Farmer and the others, Roy included, Uncle Roy, are admitting That the problem of that the black man cannot get dignity in America until the black man has dignity on the mother continent. They're admitting this. They're admitting that the roots of the black man in America are still in Africa. They're admitting this. I was shocked to see them admit so much so soon, (laughs) so publicly. (laughs) I was shocked to see that they will say in public what they've always agreed to in private. I was shocked. But it shows that they themselves are undertaking a revolutionary approach to the problem. They're beginning to see that the problem of the black man in America no longer is a Negro problem or an American problem. It's a world problem. When they begin to identify our struggle with the struggle of the brothers on the mother continent, then these big six, Uncle Roy. are seeing the necessity of internationalizing the problem. Now, either they have to deny it or confirm it. But I don't think this magazine would say all what it has said and quote them, too. Here it has Dr. King saying, There is a growing willingness among U.S. Negroes to identify with the Africans. There is a sense of pride as American Negroes see of importance in the United Nations accorded courtesies which American Negroes are not accustomed to receiving in their own country. Dr. King talked. He was up on the mountain. <laughs> and he's there beginning to see that the only way the black man in this country will ever get any solution to his problem, it will have to be a solution which the government in Washington has no hand in, because the government can't solve the problem. The government consists of crackers from Mississippi, and Georgia, and Alabama, and, and, and Arkansas, and Texas. For <laughs> so they are beginning to see that it is not we who should be taking our problem to Washington But it is we who should be taking Washington to the United Nations. It is not we who have committed the crime. It is not we who have committed the crime. It is our government that has committed the crime. Our government has failed to protect our lives, to protect our property, to give us proper education. It has failed to even give us the proper facilities for education. It has failed to house us. It has failed, as the men there in the book up in uh, Boston, when they dumped all the tea in the sea, (laughs) taxation without representation has got to go. (laughs) So I say in my conclusion, to read from another newspaper, many of you say, well, would we have the right to take the problem of the black man in this country before the U.N.? I say, yes, because. Ah. Here it says, this is in the Post a couple days ago, the Post is a New York paper, it represents itself as liberal, which is a misrepresentation. It says, uh, House asked to condemn Soviet treatment of Jews. Representative Halpern of Queens urged the House today to condemn what he termed the odious and discriminatory treatment of the Jewish community in the Soviet Union. He drafted resolutions for introduction that would condemn Russia for persecuting for the persecution of Jews and placed the House on record as favoring continued American efforts to obtain through the U.N. world condemnation and prohibition of anti-Semitism in treaty form. Soviet policy, Halpern said in a prepared speech, involves a premeditated effort to stamp out Jewish culture and religion. It is a deliberate policy, but also a a secretive one. this representative, voted into office probably by many people sitting right here, can go to Washington, D.C., and get that house, that governmental body, to stick its nose in what's happening to three million people all the way on the other side of the world, and have that government brought into the United Nations and condemned for its abuse of the rights Of those three million people, I say that the 22 million black people in this country are justified and within our rights as our brothers on the African continent to take this government into the United Nations and protect us.
1: in New York City, speaking uh, on the topic of Prospects for Freedom, 1965. And we're commemorating uh, the 59th anniversary of the martyrdom of Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik Shabazz. Uh, he was martyred on Sunday, uh, February 21st, uh, 1965, in New York City. And, of course, in listening to the words uh, of Malcolm X just uh, one month and a half before he was assassinated, Uh, you can see uh, why uh, he was a threat uh, to the united states uh, power structure this is uh, abayomi you are you listening to the pan-african journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for friday february the 23rd uh, 2024 we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown detroit we'd like to take a break and we'll be back uh, with more of the pan-african journal for uh, this week (laughs) Welcome back. And that was uh, 100 Proof, Aged and So, uh, with the track entitled Too Many Cooks. We're going to continue with our Malcolm X tribute. Uh, on the early morning hours of Sunday, uh, February 13th, uh, 1965, the home of Malcolm X in Queens uh, was bombed, firebombed. Uh, he left uh, New York City later that day to travel to Detroit, where he delivered an address uh, at uh, the Ford Auditorium. He stayed overnight at the Statler Hilton Hotel uh, in downtown Detroit and flew back uh, to New York City uh, that Monday, uh, February the 15th. Uh, this is an address he delivered uh, at a press conference at uh, the Audubon Ballroom uh, on February the 15th, uh, 1965.
0: If my babies are not safe, you are Because of events, they out of our control. As many of you know, uh, last Sunday morning, about 3 o'clock, somebody threw some bombs inside my house. Normally, I wouldn't get excited over a few bombs, but the ones who threw these not only aimed them in rooms where where there was no one, but aimed them in rooms where three of my daughters sleep, one daughter, six one daughter four and one daughter two and since I am quite certain that those who threw the bombs knew my house well enough to know where everyone was sleeping I can't quite bring my heart to the point where it can in any way be merciful or from now on compromising toward anyone who can be that low. Especially when I heard on the news today that Joseph, a brother that I found in the garbage can in Detroit in 1952, well, that's where I found him, uh, made the statement that Uh, I had bombed my own house. Now you see, this doesn't surprise me because I know that since many of us left the Muslim movement, its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. Both its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. And now they are using the same tactics that's used by the Ku Klux Klan. When the Klan bombs your church, they say you did it. When they bomb the synagogue, they say the Jews bombed their own synagogue. This is the Klan tactic. And tonight, I'll tell you why the black Muslim movement is now adopting the same tactics against black people as has been up to now, the exclusive method of the Ku Klux Klan. I want to point out, too, that I'm not talking about Muslims just to make white people happy, because I don't believe in letting anyone use me against somebody else. I'm telling you these things because it has reached a point where I feel that black people in this country need to know what's going on. And I'm talking about an organization which I had a hand in building, which I had a hand in organizing. I know its characteristics. I know its potential. I know its behavior pattern. I know what it can do and what it cannot do. And one of the things it can do is bomb your house and try and kill your baby. Before we get into it, I would like to point out also, as many of you know, uh, last Tuesday or last weekend, I was invited to address the first Congress of the Council of African Organizations in London. They had a four-day congress from the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th, and had, had invited me there to make the closing address and bring the delegates from the various African organizations that are situated on the European continent up to date in regards to the struggle of the black man in this country in his quest for human rights and human dignity. and. In conjunction with that invitation, I had gotten an invitation to visit Paris from the Afro-American community in Paris, which was sponsoring a rally in conjunction with the African community. And
2: I was supposed to go there Tuesday also and address them
0: and let them know the state of development or lack of development of our progress in this country for human rights or toward human rights. As many of you know, when I got to Paris, the man said I couldn't come in, some man, French man. Uh, They gave me no explanation other than to say, we have our orders. They wouldn't let me phone the American embassy, and they tried to imply that the American embassy was behind it, which I told them that I didn't know de Gaulle had become a satellite of Lyndon B. Johnson. I knew that Kennedy had made a satellite out of Khrushchev and, and Britain and half of these other countries, but I didn't think that France was a satellite of the United States. Well, this made them angry because they liked to be independent, you know, or pretend to be independent. But they wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me phone the American embassy. And later on, when I got back in London, and by the way, when I got back to London, there was about 20 different delegates, there were delegates from about 20 different African organizations on hand at the airport, and they were going to raise hell if anything had happened other than what should have happened. As it was, I, entered back, uh, I re-entered England with no trouble and immediately got in telephone contact with the brothers and sisters who were in Paris by telephone. And they pointed out that they had encountered some difficulty. First, from the Communist trade union workers, mind you, Communist trade union workers had uh, prevented them from renting their hall, and when they they went to get another hall, the same uh, Communist group had exercised its influence to prevent them from getting that hall. And finally, when they did get a hall, evidently someone was strong enough to exercise influence over the French government. And I might add that while I was in custody of the French, uh, every time I made a request, before they would say yes or no, they telephoned the French foreign ministry so that they were taking their orders from someone as high up in the French foreign ministry who did not want me to enter France. And there's a reason for it. I don't blame them. Uh, and, because, uh, and I told them while I was there that maybe my plane got mixed up and I was in South Africa in the wrong country. Uh, I told them this couldn't be Paris, it must be Johannesburg. And they got red, and you know how they can get red. One of them was pink. The same thing happened in England. As many of you have probably read in the Sunday Times and Tribune, uh, there was a great fear in England uh, concerning me speaking to the West Indian community. And because this is because England has a very serious tr- uh, color problem developing because so many of our people are migrating there from the British West Indies. France, quietly as it is kept, has a very serious color problem developing because of the migration to France of our people from the French West Indies. And were these people from the French West Indies, black people, going to France, others from the British West Indies going to England? coupled with the Asians who are coming from the Commonwealth territories along with the Africans from French Equatorial West Africa formerly into France and the British possessions into Britain. There's a large increasing number of dark-skinned people uh, swelling the the dark population of France and Britain and it's, it's giving them a great deal of cause for worry. The only difference over there and over here being that no one of black skin in France has ever tried to unite the dark-skinned people together, neither have they done so in England. So you can somewhat see what their fear is. No effort has been made to unite the Afro-American community or the American Negro community with the uh, West Indian community, and then those two communities with the African community, and those communities with the Asian community. This has never been done in either England or France. But when I was in uh, France, to come to Alabama and organize the black people of of, of Alabama and pull the sheet off the Klan ourselves. (laughs) And we can do it. Brothers and sisters, we can do it. And the federal government won't do it. And since then, they've been talking about a little investigation of the Klan and the the Citizens Council and the black Muslims and some of the others. But they're not going to do anything. The only way the Klan is going to be stopped is if you and I organize and stop them ourselves. (laughs) That that will stop it. You may say, well, what have I, why am I so down on the Klan all of a sudden? And I'm going to tell you why. And why did I shift my attack from the black Muslim, Elijah Muhammad and his immoral self, to uh, the clan? Yes, he's immoral. You can't, you can't take nine teenage women and seduce them and give them babies and not tell me you're mo- and then, then, then tell me you're moral. You could do it if you admitted you did it, and admitted that the babies were yours. I'd, I'd shake your hand and call you a man. A good one, too. But any time you seduce teenage girls and make them be charged with adultery, make them hide your crime, why, you're not even a man, much less a, di- a divine man. <laughs> so, uh, and, 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 and this is what he did. He took, he took at least nine that we know about. And I'm not speculating because he told this to me himself. Yes, that's why he wanted me dead, because he knew that as soon as I woke up, I'd tell it. Nine of them, not, not two of them that are suing him, but nine of them. And the FBI knows it, the law in Chicago knows it, the press even knows it, and they won't expose the man. And, wh- and, I'll, and you, don't let me get off of here tonight without telling you why they won't expose him, why they're afraid to expose him. They know that if they expose him, that he has the most... That See, the black Muslim movement, it was organized in such a way that it attracted the most militant, the most uncompromising, the most fearless and the youngest of the black people in the United States. That's who went into it. Those who didn't mind dying. They didn't mind making a sacrifice. All they were interested in was freedom and justice and equality, and they would do anything to see that it was brought about. These are the people who have followed him for the past 12 years, and the government knows it. But all of these ultra-militants have been held in check in an organization that doesn't take an active part in anything, and therefore it cannot be a threat to the movement again. From January 1961, because most of the action that Muslims got involved in was action that I was involved in myself. Wherever it happened in the country, where there was some action, it was action that I was involved in, because I believed in action. I never have gone along with no Ku Klux Klan. Or, and another one that he had made a deal with was this man Rockwell. Rockwell and Elijah Muhammad are regular correspondents with each other. You can hate me for telling you this, but I'm going to tell it to you. Rockwell attended the rallies because Elijah Muhammad put the okay on it, And Sharif, the captain of the FOI, and I had discussed it, wondering why Rockwell could come to our meetings because into Elijah Muhammad and the black Muslim movement were to crumble, that all of those militants who formerly were in it and held in check would immediately become involved in the civil rights struggle, and they would add the same kind of energy to the civil rights struggle that they gave to the black Muslim movement. And there's a great fear, you know yourself, white people don't like for black people to get involved in anything to do with civil rights unless those black people are nonviolent, loving, patient, forgiving, and all of that.
2: They don't like for them to.
0: And there has been a conspiracy across the country on the part of many factions of the press to suppress news that would open the eyes of the Muslims who are following Elijah Muhammad. They continue to make him look like he's a prophet somewhere who is getting some messages direct from God and is untouchable and things of that sort. I'm telling you the truth. But they do know that if they, if something were to happen and all these brothers, were were, their eyes were to come open, they would be right out here in every one of these civil rights organizations making these Uncle Tom Negro leaders stand up and fight like men instead of running around here nonviolently acting like women. So they hope that Elijah Muhammad remains as he is for a long time because they know that any organization that he has, it will not do anything in the struggle that the black man is confronted with in this country. Proof of which, look how violent they can get. They were violent, they've been violent from coast to coast. Muslims in the Muslim movement have been involved in cold, calculated violence. And not at one time have they been involved in any violence against the Ku Klux Klan. They're capable. They're qualified. They're equipped. They know how to do it. But they'll never do it only to another brother. Now, I am well aware of what I'm setting in motion By what I'm saying up here tonight, I'm well aware, but I have never said or done anything in my life that I wasn't prepared to suffer the consequences for. Now what does this have to do with France, Mm -hmm. England, and the United States? (laughs) You and I are living at a time when there's a revolution going on, a worldwide revolution. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. There's a worldwide revolution going on, and it's in two phases. Number one, what is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western power structure. Uh, An international power structure consisting of American interest, but as the African nation got we became proud of it. And when became proud of it, we began to have something in effect with it, but my journey was to Mecca to make myself an authentic Muslim and to bring them there up to date on the problems that our people who are Muslims have soon as we established our religious authenticity with the Muslim world, we set up the Organization of Afro-American Unity and, and took immediate steps to make certain that we would be in direct contact with our African brothers on the African continent. So the first step that has been taken, brothers and sisters, since Javi died to actually establish contact between the 22, million America, uh, the 22 million black Americans with our brothers and sisters back home was done by two organizations done first by the Muslim mosque, uh, which gave us direct ties with our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa who are Muslims. And you know we've got to unite with them because there are 700 million Muslims. And we sure need to stop being the minority and become part of the majority. So as Muslims, we united with our Muslim brothers in Asia and Africa And as uh, members of the Organization of African or Afro-American Unity, we uh, set out on a program to unite our people on this continent with our people on the mother continent. And this frightened many many interests in this country. Many people in this country who want to see us the minority and who don't want to see us taking too militant or too uncompromising a stand are absolutely against the successful Uh, regrouping or organizing of any faction in this country whose thought and whose thinking pattern is international rather than national, whose whose thought pattern, whose hopes and aspirations are worldly rather than than just within the context of of the United States border or the borderline of the United States. So this has been the purpose of the OAAU and also the Muslim mosque, to give us direct links, direct contact, direct communication and cooperation with our brothers and sisters all over the earth. And once we are successful in uniting ourselves with our people all over the world, it puts us in a position where we no longer are a minority who can be abused and walked upon. We become a part of the majority. And then if this man over here plays too rough, we got some brothers who can play as rough as he So that's all I have to say about that. I wanted you to know that my house was bombed, it was bombed by the black Muslim movement upon the orders of Elijah Muhammad. And when when the bomb was thrown, one of the bombs were thrown at the rear window of my house where my three little baby girls sleep. And I have no compassion or mercy or forgiveness or anything of that sort for anyone who attacks children. If you attack me, that's one thing. I know what to do when you start attacking me. But when you attack sleeping babies while you are lower than a gut, <laughs> The only thing that I regret in all of this is that two black groups have to fight and kill each other off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Elijah
0: Muhammad could stop the whole thing tomorrow right. just by raising his hand. Right. Really, he could. He could stop the whole thing by raising his hand. But he won't. He doesn't love black people. He doesn't even love his own followers, right. from of which they're killing each other. Right. They killed one in the browns. Right. They shot another one in the browns. They tried to get six of us uh, uh, Sunday morning and... Uh, The pattern has developed across the country. The man has gone insane, absolutely out of his mind. Besides, you can't be 70 years old and surround yourself by a handful of 16, 17, 18-year-old girls and keep your right mind. You can't do it. So from tonight on, there'll be a hot time in the old town with regret, with great regret. There's no organization in this country that could do more for the struggling black man than the black Muslim movement if it wanted to, but it has gotten into the possession of a man who's got become senile in his old age and perhaps doesn't realize it. And then he has surrounded himself by his children who are now in power and want nothing but luxury and security and comfort and will do anything to safeguard their own interests. So uh, I feel responsible for having played a major role in developing a criminal organization. It, it, it was not a criminal organization at the outstart It was an organization that had the power, the spiritual power, to reform the criminal. And this is what you have to understand. As long as that strong spiritual power was in the movement, it gave the the moral strength to the believer that would enable him to rise above all his negative tendencies. I know, because I went into the movement with more negative tendencies for the betterment of the community by any means necessary. And since... Since tonight, we had to get into this old nasty negative subject. We didn't want to bring up our program. We're going to have... You mentioned uh
2: conspiracy between the black Muslims and the
0: right wing in this country. Could you elaborate on I mentioned the conspiracy between the Muslims and the right wing in this country. I know for a fact that there is a conspiracy between, among, between the Muslims and the uh, uh, Lincoln Rockwell... Nazi and also the Ku Klux Klan. There is a conspiracy. Well, the Ku Klux Klan made a deal or were trying to make a deal with Elijah Muhammad in 1960 in the home of Jeremiah X, the minister in Atlanta at that time, who was president of the minister in uh, Philadelphia. They were trying to make a deal with him to make available to Elijah Muhammad a county, a size, tract of land in Georgia or South Carolina where Elijah Muhammad could then uh, Induce Negroes to migrate and make it appear that his program of a segregated state or separated state was feasible. And uh, to what extent these negotiations finally developed, I do not know because I was not involved in them beyond the period of uh, December 19, uh, 1960. But I do know that after that, jeremiah who was the minister throughout the south could roam the entire south and the clan not bother him in any way shape or form nor would they bother any of the black muslims from then on nor would the black muslims bother the clan
2: are you inferring then that because of this conspiracy the attempt was made upon on your life
0: the attempt could have been made upon my life and, 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 and again.
2: are you inferring that because, because of this conspiracy the attempt was made on your life.: Not
0: necessarily that conspiracy. The attempt was made upon my life because I seek my mind and I know too much, and they know that I will seek it, whether they like it or not.. <laughs> Pardon me? are to
2: take Muslims? Am I
0: urging my followers to take action against the Muslims? No. No. Some of their uh, supporters? Uh, am I going to try and infiltrate their organization and win over some of their supporters? No, I have never tried to win supporters from Elijah Muhammad. Since I have left the black Muslim movement, I've spoken at these rallies, those who come, come, those who don't, don't. But I've never gone out of my way to win over any of his followers. And he himself is fearful because he knows that you don't have to exercise too much energy to win his followers. As soon as they know truth and compare the two. Uh, and by the way, this is the brother. This is, didn't even see you there, brother. <laughs> this is Leon Amir, who was Cassius Clay's secretary, whom they beat unmercifully up in Boston. And they, the court freed the men who beat him. They fined him $100, was it? Yeah, fined him $100. And uh, he was on the inside of the black Muslim Uh, specialty squad, and and I know it. And it was he who heard Elijah Muhammad, Jr. come to New York when Elijah Muhammad was at the armory in June of last year. Jr. stood up and told the fruit, many of whom are here now also, that uh, I should have been killed, that my tongue should have been put in an envelope and sent back to Chicago by now. And because Fat Joseph had not done it, they demoted him. He remained captain, but Clarence up in Boston was put over Joseph, and and Joseph's uh, authority was curtailed. And then Clarence, the captain from Boston, and uh, John, the captain from Springfield, came to New York to assassinate me, and came to him to get a silencer, and couldn't get it. So the the police know this. It's not something that's new. They just wait until the job is done and then they step in
2: that Elijah Muhammad was behind this yes well, now e-
0: elijah Muhammad invited uh, called all of his officials national officials to chicago in october and ordered them to kill or maim any of his followers who leave him to follow me well uh, you when you say how do i know Many of the brothers who were in at that time are out now. And if this ever come into the court, there are plenty of witnesses who can stand up and testify to it.
2: Pardon? Pardon? I'd rather not
0: say at this time.
2: When you say you know too much, what do you mean? Who's the next one <laughs> Give him give him two more minutes.
0: Give them two more minutes and we'll end it. He
2: said, but us, and we'll control it. and you said including the politics. Yes. So what's the yes,
0: politics? when I said that no one can clean up our home but us and that we will clean it up, including the and, no, and and no one should control it but us, including the politics, what do I mean? I mean exactly that. That the black people You're thinking of who? Powell?
2: Powell? Powell's one of us. (laughs) No,
0: he's not a member of our organization. But when I say he's one of us, I mean he's one of the family. And, and no one outside the family can get us to talk about it. If we talk about him, we talk about him within the family. But nobody outside the family can instigate us against power. Yes, by, by controlling it politically, I mean that the politics of the community of Harlem should be controlled by those of us who live in Harlem, not by somebody sitting down in Gracie Mansion. Sir? Uh, no. Uh, but the Organization of Afro-American Unity intends to get involved in every kind of action that's going on in New York City. We don't intend to let anybody downtown influence us in any way, shape, or form. We want the influence to come from Harlem and from, where, and from other Harlem's around the country. Now, this doesn't mean we're anti- outside of Harlem. This doesn't mean we're anti-Bronx or anti-white plains or anti-white or anti-German or anything like that, but it means we're pro-Harlem. We're pro-ourselves. We want to start doing something for ourselves. That's all it means. It means that we, we want to stop begging you for your school. We want you to we, get out of the way and let us straighten out the schools in Harlem.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, I just answered
0: it when I said, "From tonight on, there will be a hot town in the the old town." I answered it when this gentleman over here asked. It's a song that we used to sing.
2: An implication,
0: an implied threat. I never imply any threats to anyone. I'm a Muslim. My religion is Islam. It's a religion of peace and sir? Yes, I do believe there'll be further attempts on my life. I know them. They're foaming at the mouth. Uh, The rank and file Muslim means well. It's those at the hierarchy who are living off the fatted calf who don't mean well. And uh, this coming Sunday at uh, 2 o'clock, as I say, our our program will be unfolded. Elijah Muhammad knows. He has done some good things and he has done some bad things. Uh, He knows that if he had wanted to, he could have... Uh, united our people with the Muslim world just by teaching the right religion of Islam. He could have done so. The entire Muslim world would have accepted him. As it is now, the Muslim world has rejected him. He can never go into the Muslim world saying that he's a prophet or that Allah came over here in the flesh. They would cut his head off if he said that over there. I mean, he knows this. Uh, None of his followers can go over there without denouncing him. It's impossible for them to go to Mecca or any other place. Unless they ascribe to Islam, as it is ascribed to over there. So he was in a position to unite us with the Muslim world, those of us who are Muslims. He was also in a position to unite us with Africa. But you cannot read anything that Elijah Muhammad has ever written that's pro-African. I defy you to find one word in his direct writing that's pro-African. You can't find it. Listen to this question this man asked me. <laughs> what are you trying to get at? No, he asked me, listen, I've got to tell him what you asked me. He asked me, don't I think if I got hurt, you know, don't, wouldn't some of my followers retaliate? What are you trying to say? <laughs> or what are you trying to get me to say?
2: I mean, it's okay. I'm not.
0: I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, going to get you in any trouble. These are your friends in here. But I. But I just want them to hear what you're asking me.
2: That's all. <laughs>
0: I just want them to hear what you're asking me. You wouldn't get in no trouble in here, would he? No.
2: Yes, sir. Last question. I'm under a civil
0: court order to get out of my house in Queens. You know, I only heard... Somebody told me that they heard that on the radio. I know nothing about it. And I haven't discussed it with a lawyer yet, and I won't make any comments until I discuss it with a lawyer. But I just hope that nobody tries to go in there while my... What's left of my belongings are there.
2: <laughs> Sir? Some
0: have, have been in the vicinity, yes, and some policemen, too, have been nice enough to watch the house ever since it was bombed. I wish they had been watching it while it was bombed.
2: <laughs> yeah, a great deal
0: of the my personal belongings were lost. They threw four bombs in there. I might point this out, that these who, these who did it were so vicious, and those who did it knew the whole layout of the house. They, uh, and to show you why I believe in Allah, the, the, the uh, bombs that were thrown into the front part of the house were thrown directly against the window, you know, so they came through. But before they threw the first one, uh, the neighbor saw someone go up to the window with a mop-like instrument and break the window, crack the glass. And then they threw the bombs in after the glass was broken. And that was in the front part. Now, they had come around to, they had planned to do it from the front and the back so that I couldn't get out. They had, they they covered the front completely at the front door then they had come to the back, but instead of getting in directly in the back of the house and throwing it this way, they stood at a 45-degree angle and tossed it at the window, so it, it glanced and went onto to the ground. And it, the fire hit the window, and it woke up my second oldest baby. Uh, and then it, but the fire burned on the outside of the house. But so it had that fire, it had that one. Gone through that window, it would have fallen on a six-year-old girl, a four-year-old girl, and a two-year-old girl. And I'm going to tell you, if it had done it, I'd taken my rifle and gone after anybody in sight. I would not wait. Cause in the, and I say that because of this. The police know the criminal operation of the black Muslim movement
2: because they have
0: thoroughly infiltrated it. That the, that the uh, city police don't know about. Because they have policemen in there. They don't let black people form anything without some policemen in there. And while I was in the black Muslim movement, over the black Muslim movement, many of the police who were sent to infiltrate us, they're black, would tell me. Say, look, I'm a cop. But I have to come. They would tell me. I knew the, 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 the Muslim movement was full of police. So don't you think anything is going down that they don't know about? The only thing that goes down is what they want to go down. And what they don't want to go down, they don't let it go down. One last, one last question. Yes, sir.
2: That you bomb your own house. That's what I said. The Muslims claim I bombed my house. Yeah,
0: no, well, you can take what you want. The, the arson squad, the fire marshal, all of them are experts in uh, this kind of thing. And if anybody can find where I bombed my house, they can put a rifle bullet through my head. It was my children and my own life and my wife's life that was at stake. In fact, let me tell you something, sir. I stood uh, Sunday morning, you know what the degree, what temperature was? It was about 15 or 20. I stood in my underwear, bare feet, in the middle of my driveway with a gun in my hand for 45 minutes, waiting for the police or waiting for the fire department to come. If I want to put on a show, I can find a better way than that to put it on.
2: That's all. There's a uh, uh, brothers
0: and sisters. There's a um, here's the Saturday Evening Post, dated February the twenty seventh, nineteen sixty five, and in it there's a uh, an article titled "An Ex Official Tells Why the Black Muslims Are a Fraud." Right. This is one of the brothers in Boston who is, who was formerly the secretary up there, and who is the cousin of Ronald Stokes, the brother who was killed out in California in April of 1962. And I would like to say this before anything else, and that is, don't think that I don't know how bad I make myself look by attacking an organization that I was once so inseparably a part of. But I'm not particularly concerned with how bad it makes me look. My prime concern is to expose it to the fullest of my ability Let the chips fall where they may. And if the black Muslim movement says that I'm wrong in what I say, then I say, since they are so well qualified and equipped, let them attack the Klan. Let them go find out, let them get the persons who bombed that church in in Birmingham. Because I'll go get them. I'll go attack the Klan and attack Rockwell and any of the others. And I defy them to do so. They can't do it. Because they both have the same paymaster. Yeah. So now our question period. And you have to stand up because I can't see beyond this man's light. Of
2: light. Of light. Is he have out of if he doesn't to jump out the window. And
1: I am appealing to you and the rest of us here who have Harlem and our concern at heart. What can we do and what must
2: we do to avoid something else like this?
0: This is what I meant earlier when I said concerning the importance of our controlling Harlem. As long as we have outsiders running our hospitals and our schools and our everything else, they will run us right on out of, the, right on out of existence. I would suggest that you come over to the office and see what we can get our heads together on and see what we can do.
2: Thank you.
0: Anything I can do, I certainly will, and I know all the brothers and sisters will. Because he's white. No, I shake his hand if he's all right. But 1st you got to get all right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the standard of judgment by, from a Muslim is... Behavior.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from uh, two addresses and a press conference. Uh, The beginning uh, was the speech, part of the speech delivered at Ford Auditorium in downtown Detroit on February the 14th, 1965. Uh, The second part uh, dealt uh, with the press conference held the following day on February 15th, 1965 at the Audubon Ballroom. And uh, that is going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Friday, February the 23rd, uh, 2024. And uh, we have been broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, to this program. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this edition of the Pan-African Journal, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And um, you can also uh, listen to well over 1,200 archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Um, And, of course, uh, you can do that by just tuning in uh, to uh, the website, the Pan-African Newswire website at um, blogtalkradio.com and, of course, um, slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, we will end our program with the music of uh, the uh, Hank Mobley. Opera Jazz Operation. This is entitled Another Workout. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
2: Mm-hmm.